my teachers once said, don't be the first guy to do something, but don't be the last. I think that there's an alternative to every drug that you would prescribe that has a black box warning. So I don't think, frankly, there are virtually any indications for fluoroquinolones in the ER anymore. Hi, it's Rick. We kind of time for Risk Management Monthly for the month of November 2021. I got Greg on the line uh, in Michigan. I got Rachel in the line uh, in Arizona, and I'm in Los Angeles. And uh, Rachel, oh, well, uh, hi, guys. Are you uh, 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 alive and well back there? Yeah, we're sure doing is. well. Okay. Uh, Rachel spoke at the ASAP meeting, which was held a couple weeks ago and presented a whole bunch of cases related to a, a, a series of themes. So I asked her if she would do a couple of cases uh, for us uh, today. I know you all like cases, and so here we go. Rachel, take it away. Perfect, so I chose my favorite set of cases from the, the chunk that I presented at ASAP, and these are, the theme of these is resuscitation, and basically areas that we kind of fell short in resuscitation. I thought that these were interesting because this is, you know, generally cessations are so algorithmic and rote, but it's pretty easy to see how things can go wrong. So the first one uh, was a Florida case in 2004 involving a two-year-old. And this one was super tragic case. Basically, a two-year-old was outside. His dad was doing yard work and he was just playing around. And the dad looks up just in time to see the little boy get bit by a diamondback. So you know, appropriately, he scoops him up, runs him inside, calls 911. Paramedics get there. They transport him to the hospital. When they get there, the kid looks okay. So they say... All right, you know, we'll we'll kind of watch him. Looks okay. They try to start an IV. He's a bit of a tough stick, but he's doing okay. So they just kind of park him in a bed and say, we'll kind of deal with him as as needed. Um, Edie gets busy. Time goes on. Kid starts looking a little punkier. So they try to get an IV a couple more times, kind of fail. Kid starts looking worse and worse and worse. At some point, basically, kid loses pulses. They still don't have an IV. And they decide to do a saphenous cut down while this kid is laying there pulseless. It takes about 10 minutes for them to get IV access. And then they kind of proceed with the resuscitation, get pulses back, but the kid ends up brain dead. And case goes to trial. And basically the main argument is, you know, inexcusable that you didn't just go for an IO and that you delayed the resuscitation to do this saphenous cut down. Mm -hmm. And really just, you know, hinges on the delay in getting appropriate IV access. And actually this one ended up as a defense verdict. So kind of goes to show when you go to trial, it's really a coin toss what happens. But I think, you know, the, it, it's a little bit hard to imagine what the thought process was. And we don't really know what was missing between the lines there, but I think um, patients or maybe more specifically lawyers, you know, they're not medical people, but they understand enough that, you know, what the tools are that we have available to us and, um, what it looks like when we're not using those tools, as in this case. Well, they've I been advised we, by uh, emergency physicians about what, what the tools are, because I don't think they would necessarily know about an I.O., but um, I think the general teaching is to have a low threshold for starting an I.O. if you can't get a get a line uh, otherwise. Cat, uh, a cut down is like, I don't even think you hear about that anymore. Yeah, but, you don't do a lot of them. But I'll tell you what, the average emergency doc does does not that many IOs in an emergent situation. I mean, uh, I haven't been there for a while, 
but I can't picture it, it like it's a daily process in these emergency departments, is it? I mean, I don't know. I think it's pretty straightforward, actually. I mean, uh, kids are the ideal people to stick these things in, and they got yes. little tibias and little shoulders uh, that are accessible. Um, that was think- too... It was 2004, so that was a long time ago, and um, maybe the I.O. thing was just coming into into vogue. Yes. Yeah, hard to say. Um, uh, okay, n- next case. Well, is there any, is oh. it, Greg, do you have any other uh, thoughts about standard of care in this case? Because um, it's all about the clock ticking and you didn't, you, you didn't uh, act quickly enough. You know, I don't actually know the literature on this type of snake bite. This was what type of snake? Um, A diamondback rattlesnake? Yep. Yeah, that's, uh, I didn't even know Florida had those. But uh, (laughs) bottom line is, uh, I don't know that we know what the outcome is for a child this age, bitten by the snake, the length of time. I think there's a lot of issues here that are are not clear. And uh, I, I, you know what? This is another case where I'm glad I wasn't the doctor sitting there yeah, having trouble getting a line in. Uh, the Florida snake that would be a problem would be the python, which would eat the kid. <laughs> the kid yeah, three yeah. quarters of the way into the snake, and you got him, got him by the feet, kind of thing, right, trying right. to, you know. Exactly. No, they, uh, I didn't know Florida had a diamondback, but uh, it's, it sounds to me like a two-year-old. Um, in the best of circumstances, that is probably a, a frightening situation. Well, you know, the standard of care uh, has changed, I think, for the starting of a subclavian or an internal jugular line now. And I think that it's been shown that using ultrasound is much safer in terms of uh, puncturing the wrong thing and finding where you want to be. And and so if you do a, a um, internal jugular with landmarks and you get into trouble uh, with it, I think that people will say the standard of care now is, um, especially by a board certified emergency physician, would be to use ultrasound. And I think that maybe with time, Greg, you saw yourself how Doing an IV stick with uh, ultrasound makes it so much easier. In fact, I was at uh, our local ER a couple weeks ago, and there was a representative from the company that was going to sell the department their uh, ultrasound stuff, teaching uh, the the nurses how to do uh, a a stick with uh, ultrasound guidance. And because they're all going to embrace that. And I think that maybe with time that will be become the uh, standard. Like if you can't get it, did you try an ultrasound? No, you didn't. Well, you, you, you uh, violated the standard of care. Yep. I don't think we're there yet for uh, uh, IVs, but I think that it certainly happened with the um, central line sticks. Yep. Uh, um, don't you think, Rachel, that's the standard of care now? Yeah, and and I think you're right to point out that the timing of this is probably important. 2004 IOs were, you know, maybe not the standard of care yet, but that's what was being litigated here as the family was alleging that that should have been. And I would, I suspect that the IO lived in that ED or the lawyer wouldn't have taken it to court to say it should have been used. So, you know, I think we can presume that 
the physician had an IO in the ED available to them and they opted not to use it because the lawyer wouldn't take this to court if the hospital didn't have an IO available. Yeah, the physician may not have been uh, an emergency physician. They may, well, I shouldn't say that. The physician may not have been uh, boarded in an emergency medicine at right. that time either. It could be family physician or, or the like. But yep. it brings up that question of, you know, when does new technology become the standard of care? And it's there's there's never an answer to that. It just kind of slowly, it's a slow shift. But it also, I think, these are the cases that keep us on our toes as far as, you know, physicians that maybe are reticent to adopt new technology as it comes out. You know, you brought up the idea of ultrasound-guided central lines. And I know that, you know, a lot of folks I work with still want to do uh, direct laryngoscopy. But, you know, you can imagine a case where they can't get a they can't get a tube. And a lawyer can say, well, you didn't use the GlideScope at the bedside. You know, there's evidence to say that that GlideScope, you would have had better outcomes to mm -hmm. visualize the cord to yes. get it in. Why didn't you use it? And, you know, I can I can imagine a, success, a successful case there. And yeah, so, I would yep. so too. You know, at some point you've got to adopt that technology and and grow with the specialty. And I think this case probably highlights, you know, advancement of I/O into being the standard of care. The uh, one one of my teachers once said, "Don't be the first guy to do something, but don't be the last." So there there does come a reasonable time there when think you're expected to kind of jump on the train and do things correctly. But uh, you point out very correctly that when that is, is not always clear. Yeah, I think by the, like the, for the subclavians, you need certainly a preponderance of the physicians doing this. I mean, that's, that is the standard that, um, and it's kind of a shame in this child, although, um, Maybe they should have been a little preemptive. I mean, uh, I would think a da Diamondback is going to kill kill this kid or cause it to become pulseless. That there would be some preemptory symptoms to that thing. You know, that's that's kind of the end of the uh, toxicity. I think the beginning is you know looking at the, the extremity and uh, is it oozing and those kinds of things to indicate whether you've been envenomated or not. And it's kind of right. like if you've been envenomated. And there's a person's looking fine. That, that that's kind of great because it means that you have the time to get this thing in. But um, this this was un, really unfortunate. And maybe people were not in, uh, familiar with what an envenomation was would look like. You know, right? Maybe they all thought it was just like a nothing nothing bite. Right. Number two. All right. So the next case was from St. John's Queens Hospital in New York in 2008. So in this case, uh, a guy came into the ED, had chest pain, shortness of breath, had an EKG done, but the EKG kind of floated around, wasn't actually read by a physician until about half an hour later. When a physician finally looked at it, they said, oh crap, this guy's having an MI and you know, went to kind of round the troops and uh, patient coded kind of right at the same time they recognized it was an MI half an hour later. So they went through all the motions, um, basically, Started started the code, uh, and I think patient lived, but with some residual deficit, and ended up suing. And specifically, what they sued for was a the delay in the in the interpretation of the EKG that half hour delay. B, he never got aspirin despite coming in with complaints consistent with ACS, and three that he didn't get epinephrine at the appropriate three to five minute intervals called for by ACLS protocol during the code, yep. and. Ultimately, they ended up settling the case for about hundred thousand. 
I'll I'll tell you this: the uh, didn't didn't get epinephrine sort of thing is is one of those things that has no literature base <laughs> to defend this. I want to see all the science involved in that. Just because it's in an ACLS manual doesn't mean that it's changed the outcome of anything, or at least that's been my experience. The second thing is, once they do an EKG, there's got to be some protocol in that department as to who has to look at that tracing. And I can see there there could be a delay there that they lay them down. Most of our nurses would throw aspirin in their mouth and that sort of thing. But they got to take that tracing to someone to read. Did that happen in this case, Rachel? It sounds like no. It, it sounds like the EKG was done and then it was just shelved. Um, nobody nobody saw it that knew how to read it for a full half hour. I'm surprised because uh, the machines read uh, EKGs now uh, probably better than doctors in the, if on average. And you would have thought the machine would have said, you know, alert, 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 you know, you know. But uh, so it it sounds like it was probably. Uh, Subtle enough that the machine didn't pick it up, which is kind of un- unusual. By the uh, way, our cardiologists say it's not that it's maybe the machine reads better. The machine reads better. It's not sleepy. It's not this. It does the intervals. And uh, what they tell you is if it says that on the piece of paper that comes out of the machine, go with it. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, believe it. So I think that this could be a suit against the hospital rather than the physician because the physician didn't get this thing for half an hour and who would be expected to, uh, maybe it was put in the chart and didn't look at it, but maybe the the nursing staff um, were responsible for this. Number one, they delayed in in, um, getting the CKG or even if they didn't, uh, they didn't read what it said on there uh, because they weren't, you know, paying attention. And so I, I don't know that our, our poor doctor is the, the blame here for that part. With regard to epinephrine, I think in 2000, in, in when was it, 14? Eight. Uh, 2008. Uh, at that time, I believe epinephrine would have been the standard of care and every doctor would testify that. This idea that epinephrine doesn't work is a, you know, in the last, <laughs> you know, 10 years uh, or eight years kind of thing. And it, and people are still doing and publishing epinephrine studies that keep on adding on, adding on, adding, adding on. So I think that you're right. I don't think that epinephrine necessarily works, but back in 2008, it did. It just lost its potency over that that, that period <laughs> of time. You know, that's the but, problem. But even then, is the standard of care really about what works, or is it about what you know everyone else is doing? Well, I think then it, everybody was giving epi. Yeah, but I mean, because in court, it's not about what the data shows works, is it? Or is it about what the standard of care is? What I think standard the of care says is everyone should be doing. Yeah, because I mean, that's standard what standard of care is basically everybody does that. Right. Um, and so you didn't do it. You didn't do it. And you didn't do it the way the uh, Heart Association said. And you, you screwed up on the EKG. So there's enough stuff there to right. piss off a family. Although if somebody comes in and arrests within a half hour of their arrival or 45 minutes of their arrival, I don't know you could have done a damn thing about it. Yes. I, I, I mean, what are you going to do? 
that's always the case, Rick. I mean, we all see these cases that if we'd been standing next to the patient uh, and given the the epinephrine that quickly, would it have actually changed the outcome? Lawsuits don't want to ask that kind of question because it's one that they can't they can't come up with a, a definitive answer. Doctor, you did it right or you did it wrong. Um, this this isn't about right and wrong. This is about what's everybody else doing and did you do it? That's what the standard of care is, I think, at this point in time. Well, I, I, mean, I can't believe that you would get an expert to say because he did give it 80 milligrams of aspirin or, or, or 325 milligrams of aspirin, that would have changed this outcome. I mean, he would have barely gotten in his stomach and, and, and digesting this. Do you think this thing is going to prevent this uh, plaque that's causing this arrhythmia? Right. I, I, it's already ruptured. That's why he's in there. He's got chest pain. And the EKG shows it. So the aspirin, it's too late for the freaking aspirin to do anything. So uh, even though they allege that to be a problem, I don't think you can get an expert to say, well, had they given the aspirin, you know, the outcome may have been different. I think that's, I think that's BS. Yes. I think, though, I do remember learning that in the emergency department, the only thing that the emergency physicians give to patients with MI that has any demonstrable mortality benefit is the aspirin because I've repeated that to students and residents all the time. Oh, that, so, that's, that's true. But it, I don't, yeah. I don't think it prevents uh, a cardiac arrest to uh, 15 minutes after you give it. I think that you, I think that you'll live longer if you get aspirin, there'll be less mortality, but this, I don't think it would have changed the outcome in this one wit. Maybe not, but then, you know, this half hour time frame, I'll, um, I'll push back a little bit on that. I think half an hour is is plenty of time to intervene prior to this guy arresting. You know, if he's in a if he's in a cath lab center, that's enough time to get him on the table. If he's not, that's enough time to get him a lytic. So, you know, that's actually a lot of time. Uh, <laughs> I agree. Now, I I think I think you're in a hell of a center if in a half hour you can be into the cath lab. Uh, oh. That would be that'd be unbelievable times in most I, places. I don't know about that, to tell you the truth. I mean, these hospitals are who are these um, these regional centers for um, uh, cardiac care. I think that they could do that. Not it may not be you know happening every all, all the time, and it may not need to happen all the time, but. I mean, isn't yeah. I think the goal every case is to be vessel opened at sixty minutes. So I think that means most of them are on the table at thirty. And right, right. I would I would agree. But anyway, so either way, like I oh, think. Oh, go I ahead. Do one other thing. I think the Heart Association said so you're supposed to get an EKG within ten minutes. Right. That's what I was going to say too. It has to get get done and read in 10 minutes. And so I think that's what everyone's been trying to enact now. And this kind of, this case kind of highlights why that is because really minutes are precious. If you have somebody who is having an MI right there. So that, and I think that 10 minute thing has probably been around for a long, long time. And so between the aspirin and, and the delay uh, in reading the EKG and not using epinephrine, when it was the standard of care at that time, I think each little sin resulted in kind of like a mortal sin here. Yeah. 
Pun intended. Not, not that right. I, not that I, yes, yeah, exactly, exactly. Right. All right, uh, third case here. So another resuscitation case. This one was from a hospital in Washington State back in 1997. So in this one, another guy, 49-year-old, came into the ED with chest pain. While he was in the waiting room, he coded, lost pulses. He got whisked back uh, to the resuscitation bay where they attempted a resuscitation um, and he died. And family... At, at some point, I don't know if they watched this or got the records later, but they figured out that a couple things went wrong with that resuscitation. First, when they tried to bag the patient, they there was no Ambu bag present, so they couldn't bag him. Second, the first time they got the defibrillator all hooked up, it didn't function, so they had to get that one off of him and fi- go find another one and attach that one. Um, so just just didn't function. And so um, those were kind of the main two allegations they brought up in court was their dysfunctional or non-existent equipment and they ended up settling for a million dollars yeah i think uh, first of all that's a lot of money but i think that if you're going to put the show on you ought to do the show correctly which is if the family is actually watching you having to run for another ambu bag or get another defibrillator or whatever it is it doesn't look good it's the kind of thing that could make people unhappy about the quality of your care. I mean, did it actually change the outcome? I don't know, but I'm not sure exactly what can be wrong with an Ambu bag. Uh, Did they have any more information than that? It wasn't there. The Ambu bag was not there. It it did not exist. Oh, that that is a problem. Yeah, yeah, you know, I understand if you're... uh, you know, at the baseball game and you don't have an Ambu bag. But if you're in an emergency department, you probably ought to have an Ambu bag somewhere there. Well, you know, uh, nurses go through and do these checks of the defibrillator, you know, every shift, I think they do it. And uh, there's a clipboard that has their acknowledgement that they checked it out and it works. So I think that this would be a suit, not against the physician, really, because it's not their responsibility to check that equipment and and to have a, a, a respiratory tray there for where the Ambu bag was. Um, so I don't think our poor doctor was really uh, involved. I think it was a right. case where the hospital let him down or her down. Right. This yeah. one was this one was against the hospital. Yeah. But yeah. they're often we're often so connected to them in terms of. Uh, culpability that the, uh, they want to go after the hospital because they're the deep pockets, I think. Right. Um, you know, Greg has said in the past that most uh, insurance companies don't want to go exceed your limits and take your house or do anything like that. They'll be just content with your limits. Although that was one of the arguments not to go to 3.5, three to five, uh, three and five versus one and three um, insurance that, um, it's kind of a circular argument. Somebody says, well, I don't want to, I don't want my house taken. So I will insure myself for $3 million. And other people say they're not going to take your house. And so, and some of the hospitals are mandating that physicians get $3 million worth of insurance. Is that the requirement now in the state of California? Uh, I think it's hospital by hospital, but uh, if they tell you they want 3 million insurance, uh, you better get, th- you're going to have to get 3 million insurance Yeah, because but, they don't want to be solely sold deep pocket in these things. 
Right, exactly. I having having been involved with this for about uh, forty years. Let me tell you, hospitals and groups are not always as forthcoming as they should be with each other as to how much insurance there actually is up on each case. And and so uh, I noticed uh, in the past with various large groups, which will remain nameless, uh, there was insurance put forward which didn't fully exist or it covered so many cases. They say, well, we've got a million dollars coverage. Well, you have to look at how many cases over what geographic area that covers, because uh, in the past, I was involved in some of those cases where the total amount of money didn't actually come out to what they had, had said. And if you want to find hospital administrators who are unhappy, just wait till you have deceived them as to how much cash there is to settle cases. Yeah, I know of a malpractice insurance company that was focused on emergency medicine that basically had to shut down because they had a huge number of losses in one year and their reserves became an issue and they were just gobbled up by somebody else because they were just not big enough to handle um, a, a series of bad suits in, in one one year. Yeah, exactly. With this case, I can imagine a variation in which the physician gets dinged where, for example, they had an Ambu bag there or they had the defibrillator, but it was around the corner or placed somewhere that the physician couldn't find it. You know, and in that case, I think the physician is on the hook instead of the hospital. Well, you know, I don't think it's you would ask the physician to go get that defibrillator. You know, I think that that's that would be viewed as uh, something that the nurses in supporting this, the care of this patient, that, that that's 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 the hospital's equipment. But say yeah. ultimately, you know, the patient needs to get resuscitated and you don't have the equipment. So the physician is like sitting there not able to do their job. If I were the lawyer, I'd ping that physician for their ineffective resuscitation. Well, you're, you know, a, mean, you're a mean person. <laughs> yeah, you're a very mean person. Mean person, yes. But, but I've, heard that, of, <laughs> I've heard that from, you know, people. All of this reminded me of when I was a resident, we were told, you know, on, when you get on shift, go around and look at all the. Really? Look at all the resuscitation bays, kind of check your airway carts, make sure you know where everything is and, you know, do kind of a, a walkthrough of everything for all your essential equipment. And we used to do that. I mean, we were terrified of all the sick patients that may or may not come that shift. So we would all do it. And it was like routine. And I haven't done it in years. And this yeah, case kind of made me remember that routine and think, you know, there's probably some wisdom in that. And maybe I should do that occasionally still. Well, I think that the nurses take this checking of the equipment very seriously because maybe your you're, nurses, I, I don't know. I think it's probably dependent on where you work. I bet you a dollar that you're uh, a dollar that your nurses are required to check this equipment every shift. Yep. You may not uh, know what they're doing, you know, in there, but I think now I may be, I may be wrong and I'll lose a dollar, uh, but I, I, all right, I'll check it out. I think that's, I think that's the standard of care. I don't want to, suggest what the Mayo Clinic is doing improperly, of course, but, uh, you know. I would just say there's probably no harm in the physicians owning that, that um, practice a little bit too. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we got a bunch of uh, news clips and stuff like that. I want to update you on. Um, let me do the first one because I think this may have a, a, a big impact on some of you. This is about the uh, VA 
and them settling for $160 million, $160 million for unpaid work done by their PAs and NPs because the, these folks were updating their medical records and completing their medical records after their shift. Uh, the VA misinterpreted what overtime meant, which is unbelievable that they would do this. Uh, the idea is you get paid overtime for every shift that you stay over. It's not what, what happens at the end of the week or 40 hours. You work over nine, you work nine hours on an eight hour shift. You're supposed to be paid by that. And, and um, if you don't get your half hour lunch and you don't get 15 minute breaks, uh, those are also something that you're supposed to be paid for if you don't get them. We had a nurse who worked in the ER about 25 years. She only worked the night shift and uh, she was the only nurse uh, for, you know, when this hospital was smaller. And when she retired, she then sued the hospital for not getting any lunches or any breaks because she was in the department the whole time. She could have eaten her lunch there, but you're supposed to be formally relieved and go about your, your lunch, your 30 minutes lunch. See, she, she sued the hospital as well. This is a class action suit. Each member of the class got $50,000, $50,000 in their overtime for doing their medical records. And those of you who are employees of hospitals and you have, a, and, and you're over staying over your shift, I would talk to your HR department about this because, um, you're entitled to additional pay unless you've signed away some kind of waiver that says, well, you know, doctors and PAs and MPs, you know, it doesn't count. And I don't think you can waive your rights on this. So uh, those of you who are employees, this may have made your day. Uh, any thoughts? Yeah, I've got one thought here. I, I mean, I spent an awful lot of time at the end of shifts for 40 years, filling out charts, going back, doing these sorts of things, you weren't but was I expected that, uh, that I was going to be paid for that? No, actually it was kind of part of the way I was mm -hmm. paid, yes. which was, you know, for the, sh the patients that I saw and we just thought it was part of the deal. Um, now I know that the PAs, the NPs that they are not paid exactly the same way, but, um, I don't think, Rick, in this case, that the physicians were a part of the people who were considered aggrieved by this payment methodology, were they? Uh, it, it only says PAs and NPs. Exactly. Um, well, I, I, I'm not exactly quite sure of the nuances of this, as we as we never are. But my lady friend who got sued, who sued the hospital because she got no breaks. And lunch, yeah, you know, she won that. And um, why would not you, if you're an employee, Rachel, you're an employee. Mm -hmm. I would talk to your HR department. You're probably owed a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, they yeah. they would retaliate, and you would be out of there on your button for I, some yeah some built up you know fabricated reason. But but she would have made her point, Rick. You know, <laughs> yeah. the job's coming. Rachel, we need somebody at Mayo to make the point that uh, this overtime that you're accumulating caring for patients need to be compensated. All right. Now, 
Have we made enough misery for you at the hospital yeah. now? Yeah, okay. yeah, have we right. done enough? Uh, let, let's way, let, let's let move on. Comment on on something that is going to come up more and more, and that is, we were just at the national meeting, the discussion, and uh, you know, I got hissed and booed several years ago when I talked about uh, how we had to look and watch and be careful with how many residents we were producing in emergency medicine and what exactly the roles of, of, of uh, NPs uh, was going to be. And by God, this is the year that it blew up. A lot of people talking about the fact that, that 20 years ago, we had a shortage of doctors. Right now, I'm willing to bet that uh, that that uh, Mayo can hire for your job. Hey, listen, uh, we're not going to we're not going to beat up on Rachel anymore. We're not going to beat up on Rachel or the Mayo. I make, I make I'm making the point that right now, when you and I were starting out in this business, Rick, we are few and far between. Right now. We've allowed something to blow up that is blowing up in our face. And we need to think about it a little bit more because uh, the last thing you want is a lot of unemployed doctors <laughs> sitting around because the last thing that a hospital, if the hospital is hiring people, well, it has to do with how many people they're out to hire as to whether you have to go up in salary and all that sort of thing. This this meeting this year really emphasized some of those problems. Greg, we got it. You yeah. were a foreseer of the future well, 20 years ago. Yeah, but you know what? It's it it's not going to go away, and we need to kind of talk about this. Uh, you you realize? I I I remember when there was like eight and ten thousand graduates a year. So I, by God. We've we've doubled the number of graduates in the last six years. Yeah, you know, I have a um, Rick's rant on MRAP on Friday with um, Jillian Schmidt, uh, who is our, our our new president, which I think our is fantastic, and uh, the uh, president of EMRA. And they're going to have an opportunity to uh, talk about uh, these issues. We've had conversations in about for about five months from various parties about uh, this this issue, from um, uh, these residency directors from uh, contract management groups and and Peter Vicellio and, uh, and, uh, and PAs and NPs and the whole kit and caboodle. But let's move on to black, black boxes, blindsided by black boxes. Sure, so this is totally changing topics, but this was an article, <clears throat> as you said, entitled Blindsided by Black Box Warnings, written by Paul Axelson in, in Medscape. So it was a review of the legal risks that are associated with these black box warnings that are occasionally found on medications. Basically, the, the key points of this article is that there's really no reliable systematic way to ensure that we as clinicians are even aware of these warnings. These can show up on medications kind of at any point throughout their lifetime, either when they first come out on the market, when it's approved by the FDA, or anytime post-marketing, um, just because after the fact, once they're out on the market, we've identified some association between these medications and some adverse effect. 
And so, and actually in reading this, it, it looks like about 20% of medications after they're out of the market is when they get a black box warning. And okay. once they're out, once they're out there, there's really no way that, that the public gets advised about these, it's just kind of a quiet process that happens. And so there's really no systematic way that we as physicians hear about these. There, there have been some of our EMRs kind of have a pop-up system that warns us. So when we're prescribing these meds, it says, hey, do you know there's a black box warning? But they happen so often and they're kind of so vague and generic that we just kind of click by them or they, they don't really help us with the particular patient we're trying to prescribe for them. So arguably fairly ineffective. Uh, this article basically makes the point that, you know, we as physicians really are obligated to be more knowledgeable about these. Um, and that in emergency medicine, you know, we, there are a number of medications that we use regularly that do have these black box warnings, maybe not as many as, you know, specialties that prescribe more broadly or for more long-term like family medicine or internal medicine, but still, um, a, a number of our medications are associated with these. Uh, let's see, theoretically, if we are prescribing a medication that has a black box warning, we should be doing something like shared decision-making with the patient, you know, sitting down and, and kind of doing a shared decision-making or informed consent process so that we're warning them about the risks associated with this and making sure that, uh, they're aware they, they are comfortable taking those risks. Um, but if we don't know about those, then it's just not happening. And so basically if patients experience those risks, there are lawyers out there who kind of advertise specifically, you know, we're a black, I'm a lawyer for a black box warning for fluoroquinolones or ondansetron uh, that just sit out there wanting to take the case for, you know, did you have a ruptured Achilles tendon? Did you have a, a issue with prolonged QT? Let me take that case for you. And, and they bring the case to court saying you didn't have appropriate informed consent. You weren't, um, or the physician had a, a duty to warn you about this and they failed. And, um, and, and in general, physicians are failing to warn about these black box warnings regularly because the system to inform us about them just isn't out there. Now, let me, let me tell you, it, it reinforces something which I learned early on in my career. And that is have a limited number of medications, you know, you use know as much as you can about that limited number. Don't be just picking a name that somebody is giving you. And, you know, when you think about it, emergency physicians probably have 20, 30 drugs at most that they give out on a regular basis. And if you're going to go outside your usual stream of medications, ask yourself a question, why am I doing this? And has somebody found something wrong? You know, I think if you look at an average physician in emergency medicine in a month, they're going to pretty much prescribe the same medications for the same stuff and know the questions to ask. You know, I, I think, Rachel, you brought up a, a good point is uh, if if you're not the one who does it, who does this? And again, it's not that we have to know 5,000 drugs and their contraindications, we, it's a handful that we use on any regular basis. Uh, I would suggest that the standard of care um, would suggest that uh, no physicians talk about black boxes in the emergency department with drugs, uh, with patients. 
right? There is there is no shared decision making regarding black blacks warnings with patients. So the standard of care is not to do the things that this guy says to do who wrote this paper. However, however, uh, that that doesn't mean that uh, that. I think that there's an alternative to every drug that you would prescribe that has a black box warning. So I don't think, frankly, there are virtually any indications for fluoroquinolones in the ER anymore. Right. Uh, but unfortunately, I would be willing to bet a dollar, Rachel and Greg, that most physicians do not about know about the black box warning released on May 16th, a couple of years ago, talking about the neuropsychiatric effects of the fluoroquinolones. They, right. they all know about the tendon things, um, but this one about the neuropsychiatric effects is, is in many ways worse than the, the tendon rupture stuff. Because some of this stuff has lasted for uh, indefinitely long periods. Yep. After taking a you know fluoroquinolone for uh, a week, so I don't think it's just I I don't think it's a violation of standard of care because you know even you, you can't talk about what ideally should be done when in fact the doctors don't do that. Um, but this gets into sta standard of care versus the standard of care. Uh, the distinction here, which is kind of subtle, but um, Ideally, they ought to do this, but they don't do it. So, but they all do that, and and that in this case is nobody talks about black box. First of all, you you don't know that the doctors know it. Number two, that they're, they're not going to talk to you about that tendon rupture. Yep. What about uh? So we give Zofran out like candy. It's actually um, well, I'll say at somewhere that I worked, it was on our nursing protocol, and we gave it out in the waiting room, and we actually had three patients in one year arrest after getting Zofran in the waiting room. And turned out later, they had also had, two of them had had EKGs in the waiting room and they had a really prolonged QT due to probably underlying hypomagnesemia and hypokalemia from their nausea vomiting that had brought them into the ED. But they, you know, so then they went to Torsades and arrested. Um, but, but on Danzatron, Zofran has a black box warning for prolonged QT. And so, you know, that's one of the ones that's just like, we give it out all the time and people aren't aware of that. We certainly aren't engaging in shared decision-making, you no. know, informed consent with it. And so I agree with you. It's not standard of care. And I really don't know, you know, how to navigate around that besides to say, this is just like one of the risks that we take on every day. Yep. That's why we buy insurance. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I think the patients look at a little differently than that, Rick, but, but I agree that uh, we give out a lot of medications every day, but we tend to give out very similar sorts of things. So we've been talking about black box warnings uh, uh, for several drugs for a long time. Um, I think in general, our residents are trained in that. They ask some of those questions. You're right, Rick. I, I don't know why uh, fluoroquinolones would be given anymore. I just don't see it as necessary. I mean, I think, go ahead. I see it not infrequently. You know, we have people who have allergies to a thousand things and maybe fluoroquinolones isn't one of them. So they get it or they request it because they had it last time and they're familiar with it or they're a COPD ear and that's what they're used to for their, you know, mm -hmm. their COPD flare or something. So I think if in that case, I might say, okay, 
we can use it, but just so you know, it does have these risks. Yes. Yeah, I, I, think, yes. I think it's perfectly normal because basically you share that um, information with the patient and you could say, I, we can try another antibiotic that doesn't have this problem, um, but you ought to know that uh, it, about it and I'm a little concerned. Yep. Right, and saying it is one thing, but then obviously document it. Document yes. it, document it. Putting it that in the chart is oh, yeah. it's it's very, very yeah. it was very important. Yes. Just yeah, as we were it, oh, go ahead. There should be like a rubber stamp. Well, I guess you can't use a rubber stamp when you have a electronic chart. It was gonna, you know, <laughs> you know, tell people that you've told them about the you know, the the the, the uh, negative effects of yeah. this drug potentially. Right. Just as we were talking here, I pulled up um, Westlaw, this legal database, and looked at just malpractice suits related to black box warnings. And there are a couple. Um, so one is, one is uh, using Lamictal in combination with Depakote, leading to Steven Johnson syndrome. Mm-hmm. Mm. One was, they don't actually name the drugs, something for hypertension that increased the risk of suicide. One was Lovenox after a spinal surgery leading to spinal hematoma. One was uh, fluoroquinolones and prednisone together leading to Achilles tendon rupture. Yep. Actually, that was the first lawsuit against uh, Johnson & Johnson was a guy by the name of John Shedd, and he was 84. Yep. And he was given, uh, he went to his doctor for a cough. The doctor gave him prednisone and uh, um, a fluoroquinolone uh, for his cough, and he ruptured both Achilles tendons. And mm-hmm. it didn't go well trying to put these back together back uh, then in an 84-year-old. So he was the first one. But subsequent to that, there were like something like 2,700 uh, lawsuits about that. This was a tack on one then because it wasn't that guy. But um, yeah, I used to work with somebody who had both his Achilles tendons ruptures in a wheelchair the whole time I knew him. Wow. Uh, the doctor? I uh, know one of our ED techs. Um, the next one was Invokana, uh, and some diabetes med and ended up needing some amputations for that. And this one was, there are a subset of diabetes medicines that are associated with increased, uh, risk of, uh, amputations, even though they're good drugs for what they do, they, there's. And when you and the, one of the things that they don't tell you about black boxes warnings is how frequently do they occur? If it's a one in a million kind of thing, well, you say, well, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll tell the patient that, and we'll we'll take our chances. If it happens in uh, every fifty patients, then you would think twice about it in terms of, and uh, that was one of the estimates for the black box warning of fluoroquinolones that the incidence of neuropsychiatric effects. Uh, was uh, between one and two percent, but it might have just been some insomnia uh, mm-hmm. that you, that you developed, or you, you got a little testy, or something like that. Um, <laughs> which you, you you may not know the difference, you know, if Martin gets testy or not. In the yeah, yes, I, w- I was going to say, know. I was going to say, one of you slipping her a drug, and uh, <laughs> yes, this one is interesting. So. Uh, in this case, is a 34-year-old woman who died because she took the wrong doses of her uh, sustained-release oxycodone. Um, and mm. it was about a million-dollar verdict. But basically, I guess there's a black box warning about dosing it on this. They call it oxycodone SR. 
I don't know if that's different sustained than oxy- release. Yeah, sustained release, right? I guess that's different than oxycontin. Anyway, um, so the prescription was written as twice a day as needed for pain, and it said that allowed the patient to take two doses in less than twelve hours, resulting in stacking, and mm-hmm. then respiratory depression. Mm-hmm. So because it was written as twice a day as needed patient ended up overdosing and died. And they said that that, um, violated the black box warning. Really? That's surprising. Yes. Uh, this is a, this is a long article that this guy did. This is entitled evaluating liability in the supervising physician PA and employer relationship. This was in the November issue, November, 2020 issue of the journal of the American Academy of physicians assistants where, and it's a detailed article citing a lot of cases uh, in it. So I've just kind of went through and tried to hit the high points. They make this idea about vicarious liability. And Greg, you've mentioned this term. Respond Many times. Respond the at. Respond you know, Right. Uh, superior. Yeah. Um, I was an older boy and I don't remember that word. But <laughs> any, you know, in any case, this is uh, the idea that you are. Um, working on behalf of somebody else and uh, the doctor is kind of really irresponsible. And so this is the idea of agency. You are the agent of the, the, the principal and that there's lots and lots of law about this relationship and the responsibilities here. Um, they, he points out that employers and physicians will face liability when malpractice is alleged of a PA for failure to appropriately monitor the PA's performance. Absolutely, you bet or there's been a breach of the state regulations regarding the relationship between the PA and, and supervising physicians, physician, which, which means, means your, pre- your, your paperwork, paperwork has, has to be completed because, because lawyers would want to see, the, see all these papers, papers and if you, you don't, don't have this stuff, stuff or you're, or you're, or you're in, 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 in violation of the, the regulations of the, of the state, state they're gonna, that, 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 that doesn't look, look good. good. Uh, recommendations, other, other recommendations, actually, this is interesting. Because uh, we at PAs and MPs, we never knew about this. The Office of Inspector General of the ha- Health and Human Services has uh, re- information regarding compliance programs, strategies, stress education. They stress education and monitoring policies and procedures. The OIG guidance should be used by employers to strategize with their legal couches, your legal, your compliance, your credentialing, and your privileging colleagues to implement policies and procedures to audit and run and monitor to ensure that the PAs, number one, got all their licenses intact. Number two, physician supervision or collaborating with PAs have been, they've been educated on the responsibility as defined by the state. So the physicians cannot abrogate the responsibility. You got a PA working in your department, you may de facto become the supervising physician, whether you like it or not. Yes. And if they're seeing <laughs> patients independently, uh, if it's not a nurse practitioner, uh, and it's a PA, because this is in the PA journal, it doesn't matter whether you like it or not, whether you're seeing them or not, you're responsible for everybody in the department because you're, they're acting on your, uh, as an agent of yours. You uh, know, I'm a, I'm a bus budget about this, Rick, and I'm not seeing patients anymore. But when I did, I told every PA I was working with, you know, you're going to take me into the room, introduce me. I'm going to say hello. They're going to know my name. And I'm going to get to ask any Greg, questions I need to Greg, about the so case. you're so old-fashioned. I know it. Nobody Rick, does that anymore. Rick, Come on. I, 
I know it. And I, I, I don't, Rachel, I have, you've got to tell us what's happening right now. But if I've, if I'm expecting a doc to supervise care, I don't know how else you do it, but take a look at the patient. Is that wrong? I, yeah, I, I tell you, there's a lot of doctors not interested in doing that. I know it. I don't want I don't, to know what goes on at the Mayo Clinic, though. We actually don't have PAs or NPs in the ED there. We have physicians. Wow, only. that that is that is that is absolutely amazing. Um, what a concept! <laughs> my my friends who work in Canada uh, don't have them either. I mean, yeah. this is this is uh, something that's been aggressively embraced in this country. But um, I wonder, I wonder what what the reason is that they don't want to ha have PAs at your hospital. I mean, it, I, 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 I think it's probably a good thing that everybody's getting seen by a uh, ER doc. Uh, that's what the all the agencies want, the ASEP and and AEM and everybody. Yeah, yeah I'm not going to weigh in on my institution specifically. <laughs> Yeah, you've already good. we've done enough damage for one. Yeah, you, Thank you. you don't have to do that, but yeah, I check I out your employment agreement about yeah. overtime now. Yeah, that's I the first thing. You know, I'm going to tell your colleagues, uh, Aaron uh, Skolnick and uh, Jess Monis, you know, that <laughs> they maybe do hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think that we have to get into the situation we're here, if we're going to be a part of the payment situation in any way, shape, or form, you ought to take some responsibility. Even if you just walk in the room, shake hands, say, I agree with what's happened so far, uh, that seems simple enough to do to me. And at a certain point in time, we're going to have to make a decision. Do you want a doctor involved or not? Because I don't know how you supervise at a huge distance. You know, I've heard this talk say, well, I look at the, I stack up the charts and look at them. I think that's a bunch of crap, Rick. Well, we've talked about this, you know, from a liability perspective, if you're the supervising physician, you're on the hook, whether you saw the patient, whether you were aware of the patient whether you mm -hmm. physically examine the patient or not, it doesn't matter. So, so you might like, as well see them. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, le legally you're, you're just as vulnerable no matter what you do. And so obviously the more involved you are, the more you can mitigate that, that vulnerability. Yeah. I, um, so we have this PA boot camp, which uh, has not enamored me with some, some physicians who think I'm training the replacements. Um, and we have one coming up in about five days in Las Vegas. Uh, but I can tell you that I've talked to many, many, many PAs and NPs, and it is really disheartening the number of them who come up and make it clear that the doctors want to distance themselves from them in terms of not only looking at their patients, but, um, giving them, um, you know, teaching them and giving them their advice and, and, uh, those kinds of things. And you know, I think that these are doctors who think that somehow by doing this, I, I'm not responsible. And um, it's really a terrible shame because we're all just trying to do the best we can for patients. Anyway. Yep. Um, Rachel, do you want to tell us about um, this next one? Did you? Uh, sure. So this is this is kind of related on the same theme. 
So this one came for from July 2020 Medical Malpractice Insights, which apparently you can get from a free subscription. So if you're liking these studies or these cases, go ahead and sign up. But in this one, it was a case. It was actually a medical malpractice attorney's wife uh, went into ED and was seen by a PA. Uh, nobody else saw her, just the PA. She was having abdominal pain and had a gallbladder ultrasound done. That was read as normal. And she was diagnosed with, of course, gastroenteritis. <laughs> she had labs done at the time. Uh, she had a leukocytosis. That's the only abnormality that was noted. And she was sent home and eventually came back and was diagnosed through a primary care visit with a right pelvic abscess from a missed appendicitis. Mm-hmm. So attorney, his wife, Sue, and looking back at the at the record, there was no record of any conversation between the physician with the PA and no record that the physician ever saw the patient. The only thing, the only record of physician at all in the chart was the attestation form. Physician doesn't remember the event, doesn't remember the patient. And so when they sue, they basically say, uh, assert lack of supervision, which was against the state law at the time and violation of the contractual relationship with the hospital, which was supposed to be supervised practice of the PA. And furthermore, they go, they assert that the PA was acting outside of their uh, scope of practice or their privileges by working independently. Are you going to give us the outcome here? <laughs> um, I don't think we have the outcome, actually. You don't? Well, oh, yeah. I, we No, I don't think we do have the outcome, but uh, no, uh, we, we don't know what the outcome was. I can't envision that there is no dollars changing hands here. I cannot envision that. And um, But there were some take-home points that they didn't say, but I said. <laughs> so... What? You want to take them? Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, okay. You, so, may, you, you may not agree. I don't know. No, there, I agree. So some take-home points. So basically, get your policies and procedures in order. Know who, you, who and how you're supposed to be supervising and, and basically do it. Because if there's a lawsuit, uh, those policies and procedures are going to be subpoenaed and you know the, the opposing party is going to know them and know what you're supposed to be doing. Um, Second, it's probably not a good idea to have PAs or NPs for that matter caring independently for adult females with abdominal pain who are who are married to who are married to malpractice attorneys. <laughs> well, right. yeah, I would put, put that. that in, I'd put that yeah, right yeah. in the the uh, yeah. the uh, standard of care there. Right, and that kind of you know leads to that discussion about there. There may be some cases where having uh, NPs and PAs see people without. Uh, I don't know, heavy supervision is appropriate, but, but this type of patient probably doesn't belong in that group. Yeah. Um, well, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Well, the, the bottom line is certain disease entities are in and of themselves. Abdominal pain is one of those. If you look at the number of cases we get wrong and have to come back, it is commonly comes back. We don't, uh, miss a lot of trimalleolar fractures. We just don't because uh, they can't walk out. But we do have those cases where the chances they're going to come back. I looked one year at, at the uh, medical legal cases I was doing. Almost a quarter of them had to do with abdominal pain. 
and almost all of those, 75% of those, were in females. This is a this is a higher risk question. And if that's going to be the case, um, you know, do the supervision, do what you got to do to figure it out. Now, do we always pick it up on the first visit? Nope. Have I ever told people, you know, here's how you are right now. I'd like to see you back in in four hours if you're not completely well. And they've done it. And and it'd be it's amazing how abdominal pain and its presentation change um, in a few hours. I I was shocked at the other people who come back in, and now they had peritonitis. It looked different. Right. You know, I suggested that there be kind of a a list. Some people may not agree with that and would prefer to leave it rather vague because if there's a list you either took care of it properly or you didn't, didn't yeah. like if, if they're if they're not allowed to see children under three months alone and somehow they do well you know that puts you in a box right away or you could say you they can't see alone non-traumatic uh, chest pain in an adult that also kind of puts you in a box and if you describe it kind of like in more general terms, uh, it gives you uh, gives you wiggle room. But I, I um, must say that uh, the idea of a PA seeing a patient like this alone gives me the heebie-jeebies. It really does. And you don't want those heebie-jeebies. Um, I have a close relative who had some surgery. I might have mentioned this before. Stop me if I have. Ten days later, he was short of breath, and uh, I thought, well, you, you know, it could be this pulmonary embolism kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, he was never short of breath before, and he was not an old person. So um, his O2 sat was normal, and he um, was seen by a, a PA in the ER when his surgeon said, go to the ER, and um, was never seen by a doctor. And uh, uh, he had tests which showed that he did not have a PE. And um, and I thought, man, if I went to an ER with a rule out PE diagnosis, I want the doctor to be, I want the doctor to see me. I don't have a, any problem with the PA doing the history, the physical, ordering the test, but but that, could, that doctor needs to know I'm there. And I think that we're just, uh, a little too comfortable um, with these cases. There are going to be a lot more of these cases as PAC more and, and NPC more and more patients. So, um, anyway. I probably have about 500 of these cases I'm sitting on. I just 500. Some, yeah. We had to have PANP day. <laughs> we'd have yeah. a we'd have a PANP year with 500 yeah. cases. Yeah. Well, we definitely have to do more of them because I think that honestly. Many of our colleagues are a little lax in this. And, you know, one of the other points I made is that when patients go to the ER, they're getting charged concierge level prices. I saw a study that basically showed that the average charge was $1,600. And I think that was for patients who went home, not who patients were admitted. And uh, if that's the case, I think you deserve to have that doctor take a look at you. Um, 
because their bills are, you know, um, if you went to urgent care center for the same sore throat, it would be, you know, a hundred dollars kind of thing. So I think you should try to get, pro provide people their money's worth when you see them. Um, and I also said that pe people should not put their name on the chart if they've never seen the patient, unless it's some kind of quality assurance activity. And even then you can't do quality assurance, uh, you know, by a chart because the chart's going to, a good chart will lead to the conclusion that the di that diagnosis sounds reasonable. Right. But this leads to this discussion, which I, there, there's a bigger system issue out there, which in reality, we have uh, physicians working in systems where there's a bunch of NPs, PAs working, and the physicians are told, look, you're supervising these patients, you need to sign their charts, but they're not given opportunity to see their patients. The NPs and PAs don't want them to see their patients. They resent the idea that they're being supervised. Mm -hmm. They're kind of antagonistic towards it. So they're independent. The NPs and PAs are off there independently seeing patients, discharging them, not interacting with physicians at all. At the end of the day, the physicians are signing their charts and they're told, you don't like it, you can leave. You know, their job is dependent on them attesting to those charts. Like that's the reality in EDs all over the place out there. That's just yeah, it how is. it is. It and, is. And so what do physicians do with that? You know, and they ask me that sometimes and I don't have a good answer for them because the system's kind of gotten out of control. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. Yep. And physicians don't want to be complainers because we're going to talk about what happened to a, com uh, a complaining physician. Uh, okay. a, little, a little further on. Um, we have just a few minutes left, so uh, let me let me take one that in fact involves um, this is further along in our notes, but this kind of relates to this topic as well. Um, where is this? Um, well, we'll do it next time. it's It's a reminder that if you complain, you can't be fired for that. And if you are, um, it's called retaliation. And if there's retaliation for you complaining of, about a patient safety issue, because of staffing, this, that, or the other thing, which we'll talk more about next time, um, they can't fire you for that. Uh, in, in, in states that have the law specifically about retaliation, and we're talking about Arizona, that has one as a result of a legislature who is an emergency physician, uh, uh, who is a legislator. Do you know that doctor by any chance, Rachel? I, I don't know him personally, but um, but he's around. We're trying to get him to come work some shifts at Mayo, actually. You know, he sounds like a really interesting uh, interesting person. I, I very much admire these physicians who are in the their prime earning years and who elect to do that. There's a fellow in California that we've interviewed who is a leg legislator um, yes. uh, for <clears throat> California. And I, I think that I, I really, I really think that they're going, doing a good thing and, and yeah. they're giving up a substantial amount of income on behalf of all of us. Oh, I'm sure that took so much of his time and energy to get that done. So that was, that's amazing. Kudos to him. Yes. Awesome. Yeah, We'll talk about more of that uh, next month. Uh, Greg, do you want to talk? Are, are you, should we just, Get rid of the wine of the month thing now that you're, no, you know. No, we should not, but I just don't have one for tonight. Um, but but uh, I will be back with a wine of the month. Don't you worry. And uh, we, we'll get it done. But um, you, you realize we've started an in, down an interesting path tonight, and I hope we have some more cases. 
the relationship between uh, PAs, NPs, emergency docs, this discussion is not going to go away. And I, and I think that these cases should be brought up to people when, when we see them, when we find them, because quite frankly, I think this is going to become more common, not less common. Well, you know, what is perceived right now is that uh, PAs and MPs rarely get sued in the emergency department. And uh, I think that's, that was, that's my belief. And if you have 500 cases, Rachel, then maybe I should change my belief. Yeah, what I what I'd like to do is kind of trend those over time to show that they're increasing. And then also, like you said, you know, we're all trying to take good care of the patients and maybe we can identify some trends. Like, is it in treatment? Is it in diagnosis? Kind of where are these errors occurring? And maybe we can identify areas where, you know, NPs and PAs can plug in more safely and some areas where it's less safe, you know, certain patient populations, certain activities, et cetera. Uh, I think that uh, from what I recall, their cause of uh, suits is the same as emergency physicians. It's uh, diagnosis related for at least 40 percent are diagnosis related. The next uh, thing was related to procedures. Um, you'd have to really have an interesting uh, experience with a procedure that's going to result in a lawsuit. Um, well, you know, the IO thing is a procedure related kind of kind of uh, case. Yes. It wasn't a diagnosis problem. They diagnosed them asystole fine. It was just it was just <laughs> the uh, IO that was an issue. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, Greg, nothing this month. Okay. All nothing. Right. You know, can I can I do the beer of the month? You do beer of the month. <laughs> uh, I love Miller Extra Light beer. Not light beer. <laughs> extra light beer. It is basically water. Yes. And, and it's 2.6% alcohol. It has 64 calories. And um, I just love it. And I don't think anything tastes as good as this beer. And they stopped selling it in Albertsons. They used to sell it in Albertsons in uh, Arizona. And we couldn't find it anymore. And so I went on the internet. I couldn't find it anywhere around here. I went on the internet. Everybody's asking, what happened to Miller 64? And uh, they basically said, we're rebranding re it in terms of its packaging, and we're going to have a huge, huge marketing effort because it's so popular with younger people that don't want the calories, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I said, thank God. You know, <laughs> Something's breaking. So it's coming. I have about oh, a half right. a case left. So right. I got I to gotta basically uh, stretch this out for however long this <laughs> thing's coming. But anyway. Okay. I have a lot of stress in my life, Rachel. I, I, you know, I, I understand. I, I I got problems. You know, I get, they took away my Miller sixty four. What next? Okay, guys, <laughs> thanks so much, Rachel. I know that you have um, get off the phone here in, in a couple of minutes, Greg. Uh, thank you as well, and yes. let's do this again real soon. 